Well, in last week's chapel message, we learned from Luke 22 that Jesus, the great I am, came into the midst of debating disciples. You remember from Dr. Neely's message, these disciples who were debating amongst themselves who was the greatest. And Jesus came into their midst, the the great I am, and he declared to them, I am among you. I am here to serve, not to be served, but to serve. Uh, Jesus then, you, you remember, he proceeded to wash the disciples' feet and he declared that he is the great servant king. You might say that Jesus here in Luke 22 Uh, and throughout his whole public ministry on earth, was the final fulfillment of the humble servant king of the Old Testament. All of the types, all of the shadows that pointed forward to Jesus found fulfillment in him and in his ministry. In contrast to the very pomp and and, uh, splendor and honor that earthly kings desire, temptations that might tug on our hearts as well, Jesus came as the servant king. He was born in a humble way. He was raised in a regular, even lower class family. For 30 years, he took on a common profession uh, hidden in his ministry. He called to himself a group of regular fishermen as disciples. In every way, Jesus led a life that seemed to contradict his royal claim. Now, thankfully, the biblical story does not end there. Providentially, the passage that we read from 1 Corinthians 15 dovetails nicely with last week's chapel message, and it picks up on this royal theme. I have given today's chapel message this simple title, Jesus Christ, the resurrected ruler. And with God's help, we will see that 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 28, provides the definitive evidence of the Christian's assured hope. And this is the evidence. Having been raised from deadness to life, Jesus Christ is even now the resurrected and reigning king. And he is coming again to finally deliver all those united to him and vanquish all those opposed to his everlasting kingdom and rule. Well, using the three basic tenses of past, present, and future, these three points will help structure this truth. First, the historical certainty of Jesus' resurrection. That's the past. Second, the current reign of King Jesus, the present. And third, the coming deliverance, the future. Historical certainty, current reign, and coming deliverance, past, present, and future. So first, the historical certainty of Jesus' resurrection. Well, as this message today is not a part of a larger a series on 1 Corinthians, it's helpful at the beginning to understand a little bit about why Paul is writing to the, first, to the Corinthians. According to Acts 18, we know that Paul ministered in Corinth for about 18 months. Uh, 
he had he encountered many obstacles, uh, false teachers who opposed him, uh, blasphemed against him, and yet God blessed Paul's ministry in Corinth. Uh, perhaps the most surprising uh, ministry or or uh, the most surprising conversion was recorded in Acts 18. It's that the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, believed on the Lord with his whole household. Uh, Through Paul's ministry, God raised up a group of believers in Corinth. But you should know that ministry in Corinth was not an easy task. Corinth was a, a busy port city, that was, that was located on the four-and-a-half-mile-wide isthmus that connected the Greek mainland with the Peloponnesian Peninsula. It was literally at the crossroads of traffic that went north and south on this small isthmus, as well as an important center for naval traffic. And as, young, as a young Christian community within this busy context, it's not surprising that Paul spent a lot of his time instructing the Corinthians on how to live as a godly community within this context. And so, Paul's letter to the Corinthians details at least 10 issues or areas of doctrine or practice that he believed the Corinthians needed to know and to live. And so, in chapters 1 through 4, Paul warns against division within the Corinthian church, uh, prompted by rallying around human leaders. In chapter 5, he warns the church against incest. In chapter 6, he warns against bringing lawsuits against each other. In chapter 7, he gives instruction about marriage and singleness. In chapter 8, and he revisits revisits this in chapter 10, he provides instruction about food offered to idols. In chapter 11, he warns against abusing the Lord's Supper. And in chapter 12, he gives instruction about properly exercising the spiritual gifts that God has given. Now, in each of these 10 issues or problems raised by the Corinthian church, Paul shows how the gospel provides the fundamental solution to the Corinthian problem. It's as if Paul wanted to put in bold face, capital letters, above every single problem that the Corinthians encountered, he wanted to stamp above every problem these words. Whatever the problem is, whatever problem you might encounter, it's the gospel that provides the solution. It's the gospel that allows for unity in the church. It's the gospel that frames how church discipline looks like. It's the gospel that answers what proper sexual relations should be and what they look like. It's the gospel that provides Christian freedom in what we eat, as well as enables us to give up our rights for the sake of our neighbor. It's the gospel that allows for a right participation of the Lord's Supper. So echoing throughout 1 Corinthians is this refrain. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the gospel that's our answer to our sin and to our problems. Now, interestingly, this refrain, common repeated refrain, is further highlighted by a recurring phrase 
in 1 Corinthians. This phrase, now concerning. Six times Paul uses this phrase, now concerning. And usually this phrase signals a transition in his letter to another issue or to another problem raised by the Corinthians. This phrase further seems to signify that Paul is responding to an actual a list that is proposed by the early uh, Christians at Corinth. It's as if the Corinthians presented Paul with this list of problems that they had, and 1 Corinthians is Paul's response to many of these issues that plagued the Corinthian church. Well, it's the 10th and the final issue that he considers that brings us to the chapter we are considering today, 1 Corinthians 15. And yet, Paul handles this issue in a slightly different way. His normal process was to list the problem at the beginning and uh, perhaps signal the, the change by this phrase now concerning and then provide the gospel message and the gospel response. But this is not the order that he takes in 1 Corinthians 15. Not only is the phrase now concerning absent in this chapter, but notice how it's not until verse 12 that we find out what problem Paul is addressing in the church. In verse 12, we find out that there were some within the Corinthian community who denied denied that there is a resurrection of the body. Apparently, some were teaching that death is final for the body. The reality of physical existence in the afterlife is a complete myth. But rather than beginning with a problem and then showing the gospel answer, Paul begins in the very first four verses with one of the most clearest and succinct definitions of the gospel. This is a message that he consistently preached in their midst for the 18 months that he ministered in Corinth. Well, what is this gospel? What is this good news that he brought for his ministry in Corinth? It's this, that Jesus Christ assumed to himself a human nature, that he lived a perfect life, that he died upon the cross for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and hear this, that he rose again, according to the scriptures. This is the gospel message that he declares in the first four verses. Now, I remember distinctly one of my undergraduate professors challenging us to consciously think of Christ's death and resurrection as the two great definitive acts of the gospel. He would say, often say to us, uh, how often in our prayers, in our theology, uh, that we consider the gospel only in light of Jesus' active and passive obedience, of his death upon the cross? How often do we consider the gospel only in light of the atonement that Christ paid on the cross for our sins? Now, surely, without the cross, we would be left dead in our sins, undoubtedly. It's good and right that we focus on Christ's perfect obedience 
his propitiatory death. But where would we be if Christ had not risen from the dead? Where would we be if Christ remained in the grave? How often do you, how often do I, thank God for Jesus' victory over death? Does his resurrection, does it factor at all into your Christian life? Are you living your life? Am I living my life in light of the cross and the resurrection? Paul's argument uh, even takes a, a syllogistic format, uh, verses 12 to 19. It, it's, he says it's the entirety of our theology. In, indeed, our entire Christian existence, our hope, depends on the central fact that Jesus rose from the grave. If this great climactic event did not take place in history, Paul's entire ministry was in vain. You could, you could discount everything that he said. Every, every letter that he wrote could be discounted if this was not true. Even more, your, your faith is empty. It's meaningless. Your faith is meaningless without this event. The entire Bible is staked on this claim, this historic claim. If Jesus is yet in the grave, Paul says, Christianity is a lie. It's a, it's a, it's a farce. If Jesus is yet in the grave, you are still in your sins, verse 17 says. Stacking consequence upon consequence upon consequence Paul says, verse 19, if Jesus is still in the grave, you, we, I, we all are, of all men, most miserable, most deserving of pity. In short, there is no hope, none whatsoever, if Jesus is yet in the grave. And this is why Paul goes to such great lengths at the beginning to establish the historicity, the, the reality of the resurrection. It's an established fact that Jesus died and rose again. This is certain. It's true. Paul marshals numerous witnesses who can testify to the truth of this historic claim that he's making. The resurrected Jesus, the same Jesus, the one who died, is the one who rose again. He was seen by individuals. Peter, he was seen by smaller groups of people, the 12 disciples. He was seen by a large group of people, 500 people. Note, all at once, all at the same time. Some who are still living at the day. Go ask them. Go, go check with them. Uh, communicate with them. They can testify that Jesus rose again. And last of all, Jesus was seen by him by Paul, a persecutor turned apostle, witness after witness after witness, evidence upon evidence, declares this same historic fact. It is certain Jesus rose from the dead. But according to Paul, the, this historic reality, Jesus' resurrection, has present consequences. And this is our second point to consider. Because Jesus 
has risen from the grave. Right now, presently, he is the reigning and victorious king. You must not miss this simple fact that Jesus' resurrection, his conquering of the grave, means that he is alive today. Today, Jesus is on the throne. Paul's extended syllogism, as we considered, continues into the present. Verse 20 emphasizes again, but now is Christ risen from the dead. In other words, it's an established fact that he is risen. It's undoubtable. And so, verse 25 continues, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Now, no, it's an imperative. Jesus must reign. As certain as he rose again, so certain is it that he is reigning right now. And furthermore, this present reign of King Jesus is all-encompassing. The remainder of verse 25 declares, till he has put all enemies under his feet. Now, this does not mean that some things are outside of King Jesus' control. Or, it does not mean that he is gaining more and more power until one day everything will be under his control, under his sovereign reign. No, the, the better interpretation here is that Jesus' dominion is presently over all. He currently reigns over all things. Nothing is outside of his sovereign control. And yet, there are those presently who do not recognize his reign. There are those presently who oppose his sovereign rule. This interpretation is confirmed in two ways. Uh, first, it's clear that Paul here is paraphrasing Psalm 110, verse 1. This is an often quoted psalm where Yahweh is dialoguing with Adonai, declaring to him that all the enemies to the son's rule will one day be vanquished. The psalm, Psalm 110, declares that Yahweh has already established, certainly established, the son's throne and his rule, and that everything and everyone is under the son's rule, even though not all bow under the rule at the moment. And nevertheless, as Philippians 2 declares, there will come a time when, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And second, Jesus' current reign over all things is confirmed by verse 27. Here Paul writes, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Notice that Paul does not say here, God will put all things under his feet, but that he has. Uh, for those studying Greek here, it's the aorist tense that is used at this point. Jesus' reign is an already accomplished fact that has present-day consequences. Jesus' present rule over all things does not mean the same for all people, however. Look at verses 20 to 23. Here, uh, Paul echoes his teaching of Romans 5, 
often referred to by some as the, his two Adams theology, two Adam theology. The obvious contrast that Paul sets up here in these verses, as he did in Romans 5, was between those united to and represented by the first Adam, as opposed to those united to and represented by the second or final Adam. Whereas Romans 5 looked at the two Adams contrasting obedience and disobedience, uh, here the contrast is of death and resurrecting life. The first Adam only brings death, whereas the final Adam, Jesus, the last Adam, he brings resurrecting life. Paul even stipulates that Jesus, through his resurrection, paved the way for all those united to him. Notice twice he says that Jesus' resurrection is the, the first fruits, literally the, the first of the harvest consecrated to God as a, as a guarantee of the future blessing, a down payment. The order here is extremely important. Given his resurrection, Jesus paves the way. He's able to guarantee blessing and life to all those united to him. Death comes through Adam, but life, everlasting, glorious, eternal life, comes through King Jesus. Now, the, the all-important question, of course, remains, who are we, who are you, who am I united to? Are we bound to, are we represented by our, fa our fallen father Adam, whose body remains in the grave and can only bring death? Or is Jesus Christ, the, the presently resurrected king, is he your representative head? Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? If, if you are indeed presently in Christ, there's certain reason to rejoice, to hope. Your Savior has already accomplished with his resurrection, guaranteed life, eternal life for you. The debt of sin has been paid on the cross, and his resurrection from, uh, from the dead demonstrates that God has accepted this, hereby declaring that our, our record of debt is forever canceled. But of course, if you are an Adam, you are then still in your sins. Death is the only outcome if you remain in this state. Now, thankfully, Jesus is still presently subduing enemies. His work is not complete. His work still remains. Today, he invites all those to bow the knee to King Jesus, to submit to his life, to his kingly rule, and to draw life, everlasting life, from this resurrected king. 1 Corinthians 15 not only references the past, the historical certainty of Jesus' re resurrection, the present reality of his rule, but it also speaks about a future deliverance that is necessarily connected to his rule and resurrection. And it's here that we encounter some perplexing issues in the text. What does Paul mean, uh, for example, when he says that the resurrected Jesus has received a kingdom from the Father? 
or at the end, what, at, at the end, when all things are subjected to the Son, except for the Father, that the Son will deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, verse 24. Or if you look at verse 28, what does Paul mean when it seems to indicate that the Son, although all things will be subject to him, is himself subject to the Father? Do these verses teach that in the end, in the final analysis, at the end of the age, that the Son is somehow less than the Father? That Jesus will be shown to be inferior to the Father as something less than God? Well, without going into the, the full history of how these verses have been interpreted, that's precisely how some have looked at these. Precisely how the Socinians understood this passage. The Socinians were a 17th century group, a biblicist group, who denied the Trinity. And they looked to these verses, 24 to 28, and they said, aha, here's, here's evidence uh, that the Son does not have power that's original to himself. He has to receive power from the Father. And at the end of the age, he will actually deliver that power back to the Father. This demonstrates, according to the Socinians, that he's inferior to the Father. He is not God of himself. Yes, the Son might hold an honorable office and do a, an important work, but he's not equal to God, as these verses show. What well, is this what these verses teach? The Reformed, who, who responded to the Socinians, argued that the kingdom being referenced here was not the essential kingdom and authority that the Son had equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, that the Son had as, as second person of the Trinity. No, the kingdom referenced here is the God-man's mediatorial kingdom. The kingdom referenced here is specific to the redeemed church. What 1 Corinthians 15 declares to us is that Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, the only mediator, the only one who is physically resurrected as the God-man, he will certainly and definitively accomplish his redemptive work, his saving work, the redemption of his kingdom. And that all of those, everyone who bows the knee to this mediator king will finally and conclusively be handed over to the Father, delivered to the Father at the end of the age. From Psalm 2, uh, we, we sung this. We read that the Father gives the nations to Jesus Christ as his inheritance. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, we are assured that each and every member of this spiritual kingdom will be ushered into a glorious eternal age to come. Well, finally, notice what this future age will consist of. Not only will every person united to, to the God-man ruler be safely and securely delivered into the glorious age to come, but anything and everyone who opposes his rule will be overcome. Death included. Verse 25 could not be clearer. He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. 
And verse 26 continues, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. You see, this is, this is not a hypothetical. This, this is not a, a simple suggestion. No, it's, it's certain. You see, the, the syllogism of Paul continues all the way through, past, present, and future. Premise upon premise is built up until this final, cataclysmic, triumphant age when Jesus Christ, King Jesus, will make, not maybe make, he will make all things right. Paul's reasoning follows this. Jesus' resurrection is certain. His present reign over all things is certain. His future triumphant reign over all things is certain as well. As I begin, then, the Christian has every reason for hope, for certain hope. Why? Why do we hope? Because Jesus Christ has been raised. He is currently reigning. And he is most assuredly coming again. And yet the reverse implication is equally as true. If you are and if, if you are and continue to remain an enemy of this resurrected ruler, you have every reason to be pitied. In Paul's words, you are of all people most miserable, most deserving of pity. King Jesus, it is assured, he will vanquish every enemy, death included. And should you dare defy this majestic king, the opposite of resurrection life is your result. Know this, the resurrected ruler is returning. No longer is he coming as the humble servant king of Luke 22. No, he will come as the great royal rider of the white horse from Revelation 6. That is how he will come. He will vanquish every foe, including death. And so in the words of Psalm 2, as we have sung these, hear this, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. And you might say, all peoples of the earth, hear this, serve the Lord with fear, Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. But then these words, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we come and bow before you, recognizing your awesome and majestic power. You are Father, Son, and Holy, Sp Holy Spirit. You are glorious beyond compare. We bow in your presence, Lord. As King, we recognize that you rule over all things. We know most assuredly, King Jesus, that you are coming again to gather your bride to yourself. We pray, Lord, as we await that day of your glorious and majestic return as resurrected ruler, that we would live our lives in obedience to you, recognizing your rule, loving your rule, loving to uh, wishing to follow you in all in all our in all of your commands. We pray that you would give us diligence, forgive our sins in this, and we give you thanks, Lord, for both 
your death upon the cross, as well as your resurrection. We praise you for this. We pray this all in your great and mighty name. Amen.